0: I read something this week that, that caught my interest, written by Maxie Dunham in a book called Living in the Psalms. He talked about how sometimes we approach the Bible, when we get in God's Word, we approach it like a mouse, trying to get cheese off of a mousetrap without getting caught. <laughs> but as he writes, he says, listen. It's not just about someone else a long time ago. If we see the Bible as the story of the triumph of God's grace, the story of God searching for us today, then look out. The story will come alive. God will find us, and we will know that, that we are found. I like that because that's what, how I want us to approach our passage this morning. We're going to be in Mark chapter 3, and we're going to see three very different responses to Jesus in his ministry, but the last thing I want is for us to say, yeah, that was 2,000 years ago, that's cool, I got that filed away in my memory bank, now let's move on. As we go through these three responses to Jesus, I want us to be asking ourselves, which of these three groups do I find myself in this morning as I respond to Jesus the three responses in the chapter one is a a group that's confused about Jesus second group is closed off to him walls up they want nothing to do with him or his teachings and the third group is a group that is close to Jesus As I looked at those three categories, I thought, man, those fit really well with what C.S. Lewis said about our perceptions of the Lord. He said, you got three choices regarding Jesus. He's either Lord, he's a lunatic, or he's a liar. He says, let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being only a great human teacher. Jesus has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Early on, after Jesus was born, Mary was told that through his ministry, the thoughts of many hearts would be revealed. And we see that all through the Gospels. As people encounter Jesus, you see their hearts revealed. But it didn't stop in the Gospels. It still happens today. Every time we encounter Jesus, something about our own hearts are are revealed. As I thought about the reality of Jesus Christ, one one way I, I think of it is like you're on a beach and you're out in the water a ways and you see this 50-foot wave out there a little ways and it's barreling towards you. And you can stand there and, and debate the reality of the wave with people around you all you want. <laughs> you can wrestle with is it real, is it not? Do I want to believe in that wave? You can do all that, but the reality is the wave is coming regardless of where you land on it. You basically have two options. One is to stand there in defiance against the wave and be crushed by it. The other is to grab a surfboard and ride that baby. (laughs) Okay, and as I think about that, that's true with Jesus. We're either going to reject Him in obstinate pride and be crushed by Him eternally, or we're going to grab that surfboard. And you know what that surfboard is? It is faith in who He is and what He has said and ride into the abundant life that He came to bring. In the Old Testament, Joshua faced this kind of choice You remember he was leading Israel. They were on the edge of the promised land and he was the human leader of their army. So God comes to give him some some general instruction in the form of the commander of the armies of the Lord. He shows up. Many believe this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ himself to Joshua. And he shows up and Joshua In chapter 5, verse 13, his first question is like, are you for us or for our adversaries? That's a good question. When somebody of that magnitude shows up, I want you to listen to the answer of the commander of the armies of the Lord. Verse 14, he said, no. Are you for us or for our adversaries? He says, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. I've heard that paraphrase as the commander saying, I'm not here to choose sides. I am the side. How would Joshua respond to that? Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? That's a really good response when we encounter God or Jesus. What do you say to me this morning? the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. That is also wise. After we have heard what the Lord says, we, we'd be wise to, to do it. I want to come with that kind of openness to Jesus this morning. And, and I think in the context of our world right now, I want to give you one more reason why it's so important that we do that. If you're like me, you go through the week and you look at this news channel, this social app site, you read this story here and then read a totally different version of it over here and you're left with this sense like, is there any place out there where I can go with an honest open heart and just get the doggone truth? Right? (laughs) Right? I'm here to tell you this morning that Jesus Christ is that place, that one you've been looking for. If you come to Him with an open heart, listening to what He says and following it, you will have found the truth. John 14, 6, He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Me. When he stood before Pilate, right before Pilate asked that question in John 18, what is truth? Jesus said, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. You're looking for truth this morning. Look to Jesus. And as we look at these three responses, I want you to ask that question. Which group am I in? This first group is confused about Jesus. They think he is going crazy. They think he's... Loco in la cabeza. They, they think he's a few fish and loaves short of a Galilee happy meal. And the interesting part is this is his, his family, okay? Verse 20 says he went home. And I believe, along with many, this is his second home, his home away from home, which he set up in Capernaum, either at Simon, Peter, and Andrew's house or nearby. He went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. So what's going on? Jesus and his disciples are just ministering, especially Jesus, probably teaching, healing. And he's skipping meals. He's he's so into what he's doing. It says, when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. They live in Nazareth. I believe they, they, they hear the word of what's going on and they leave Nazareth to head down here to seize him, to arrest him. Now I believe they have good intentions, they're family, they're they're confused about what he's up to, but they want to take him away and say, Jesus, Jesus, come on man, you're going a little too far with this stuff, let's go home and rest, get you all better. For the people were saying, he is out of his mind. Now you may find it surprising to know that John 7 verse 5 tells us his own brother's during that stretch of his earthly ministry, did not believe him. His own brothers, and I, I want to think a little bit about Jesus growing up years, because there's one verse that names four of his brothers by name, and then it mentions all of his sisters, which tells me he was the oldest of at least seven. He came from a big family. Any big family people in here? Okay, and 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 I've heard people, just imagine what that's like to, to grow up as a younger sibling of The son of God. Well, Mom, Jesus never gets in trouble. (laughs) Jesus, later on in his ministry, said that a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, right? Often the people that are closest to him there had the most trouble accepting him. That's Jesus, the the carpenter's son. He grew up down the street. How can he be the, the son of God? But even his own brothers did not believe it him at this point of his ministry. Fast forward to Acts 1.14. Jesus has ascended to heaven. As all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. You see, something happened with Big Brother in between those two events. Any idea what changed their minds? Came back. Big brother was buried in a tomb, and he came out. Okay, that that has a way of changing perspectives to the point where we believe the James and Jude in our New Testament are actually written by two of his earthly brothers. They came around because of the resurrection, but at this point they're in process. How many of us can relate to that, right? Discipleship with Jesus is a process. We are learning even his own disciples, the ones that hung out with him, were in a constant learning mode. I mean, nobody had more access to him than Peter, and he's the one that rebuked the Lord for saying he was going to the cross, and Jesus had to look at him and say, Get behind me, Satan. Well, even his closest guys are in process, so so we can relate to that. But when I see them looking at Jesus and say, He's not eating. He's getting so involved in this teaching and healing and everything he's doing. He's going crazy. I I think back to John chapter 4. Jesus was at the well with the Samaritan woman and the disciples had the same kind of moment. They're, They're talking to him about making sure he eats. And you remember what he said to the disciples as he's sharing the good news of life with this Samaritan woman? He said, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. That's what captured his heart. That's what he was passionate about doing his father's will. Setting aside physical food is not uncommon when someone's pursuing a passion or someone's in a moment of genius. David McKenna said that was common with Thomas Edison. As he neared the completion of the incandescent light, his family would bring him plates of food that he would leave untouched for long periods of time. And they thought he was off his rocker. He wasn't off his rocker. He was about to invent the incandescent light. Jesus wasn't off his rocker. He's he's doing his father's will. But they thought he was out of his mind. Ralph Earl talks about how quickly we, we label people who get passionate about Jesus as insane fanatics. But we don't do the same thing with sports fans, strangely enough. And I am a sports fan. I love sports. I enjoy them underneath my relationship with God. I thank God for sports. But I'm telling you, I, I think about like how excited I get about sports. Like Our team, the Browns, is in the playoffs. And we had a win last week against the Steelers in the first round. It was our first playoff win since 1995. Our quarterback was not even born. <laughs> so, and I think about fans of the Browns. Did you know we have something in Cleveland called the dog pound? That, those are the crazy fans, and all of us get into it a little bit. I, I was watching that game last week, and I'm at home. Browns are scoring and, and doing well, and I'm going, hoo, 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 hoo. I'm a dog. I'm in the dog pound, right? And Evan, he's never seen a Browns playoff game in his lifetime. He's asking Jaden, what's dad doing? And Jaden says he's barking. That's that's what <laughs> Browns fans do. You go to the dog pound at the stadium, you see him on TV, you got grown men with dog masks on. And I've got a picture from when I was growing up with my brother eating dog bone-shaped cookies during the game in our Browns bathrobes. <laughs> okay? That's not crazy, but. But if I bring up Jesus in the workplace or, or say a prayer out in public, all of a sudden, what that, that guy's uh, insane. What, what about work? Charles Erdman. That men are much more frequently called fanatics when they endanger their health in the cause of Christ than when they take similar risks in the pursuit of wealth and fame. No one thinks twice about someone giving up everything, sometimes including their family, in pursuit of wealth and fame, but... You go after Jesus hardcore, that guy's nuts. A.W. Tozer said, listen, a real Christian is an odd number. He feels supreme love for one whom he has never seen, expects to go to heaven on the virtue of another, empties himself in order to be full, admits he is wrong so he can be declared right, Goes down in order to get up. Is strongest when he is weakest. He dies so he can live. Forsakes so he can keep. Sees the invisible. Hears the inaudible. And knows that which passes knowledge. The real Christian is an odd number. Like his Lord was to some who looked on. They were confused and As you think about being confused about Jesus and that process of learning who He is, I think the answer is if you feel that, ask Him to clarify with an open heart. Open His Word, especially the Gospels. They clarify to me, not who I think you are, but but who you really are. Connect with a believer and say, help me, i got some questions about this aspect or this aspect of, of Jesus. Ask Him to clarify. There's a second group that was completely closed off to Jesus. It's the religious leaders. In this case, the scribes, the experts in the the law. They essentially call him a liar in this passage. Because Jesus said he brought the kingdom of God. Listen to what they say. After he had just healed a a demon-possessed man, as we learn from Matthew, that couldn't see, couldn't talk. And all of a sudden, he could see, could talk, and the crowd was in awe, like, whoa, that's really cool, as any unprejudiced person would be. But these guys were not unprejudiced, and they had a totally different response after this. You know what they say in verse 22? The scribes who came down from Jerusalem, they traveled for this. They're hearing word about Jesus, his teaching, his ministry, and they're coming to get a close look at it. Okay, they traveled down, and they were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. That word Beelzebul, the the gal who read it our first service, came up before service and said, how do you say that? I get that. That's a, a weird word. It's talking about Satan, as we'll find out in context. But Beelzebul means Lord of the house, Lord of the dwelling, which will make sense as we go further into this story. They're saying he's possessed by Satan. You're not bringing the kingdom of God. You are possessed. And by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. You're casting out demons in the power of Satan. Now Jesus does not shy away from the accusation. He comes back with two very strong rebuttals. The first one is, your assessment of this is foolish. It doesn't even make sense. I think if you look at it, even a child with an open mind could see that what they said makes no sense at all. He called them to him and he said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? Satan. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. Paraphrase, why why would Satan fight against Satan? I'm going to go back to the, the Browns again, because I don't get to do this every year, okay? Especially this time of year. They won that game against Pittsburgh last week, 48 to 37. Okay? It was 28 to 0 at the end of the first quarter, Browns. 35 to 10 at the end of the first half. Now, how many of you think that happened because the head coach of the Steelers, Mike Tomlin, got them together before the game and said, "Hey guys, it has been a long time since the Browns won anything. <laughs> I want to help them out today." Okay, so center on the first play of the game, if you could just snap the head right over Ben Ro- snap the ball right over Ben Roethlisberger's head into the end zone, so the Browns can dive on it for a touchdown. Okay, and Ben. QB, if you could please just throw three interceptions in the first half. That would be awesome. How many of you think that's what happened? <laughs> Got some skeptics of the Browns in the crowd. That is not what happened. You know what happened? Cleveland was a stronger team. Ooh, 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 ooh. A stronger team showed up, the opponent was stronger and whooped them. And Jesus is saying, Satan wouldn't cast out Satan. A stronger one has showed up on the scene. Verse 27, he said, No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. He's saying, I bound Satan, and I'm taking back what does not belong to him. Luke eleven twenty-one, 21, Jesus says, Add some detail. He says, When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. That is what Jesus does to Satan's realm. William Lane said it this way, Satan is that strong man His strength is evidenced in the enslavement of men through sin, possession, disease, and death. Only one who is stronger than he can enter into his realm, bind him, and plunder his goods. This Jesus has done. The heart of Jesus' mission is to confront Satan and crush him on all fields. Do you know this was predicted in the suffering servant passage in Isaiah 53? Many of us know that passage because of the cross aspect. Let's talk about the the resurrection and the victory. Isaiah 53, 12, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. That's our Jesus. That's his first answer. Guys, your answer doesn't even make sense, and I'm going to paraphrase it. It wouldn't even make sense to a five-year-old. Second answer is a lot more cutting. He says, not just foolish, your answer is flat out sinful. It is sinful after all you've seen and heard from me right in front of your face. Verse 28, truly I say to you, some translations say verily, some say amen. He did not say amen and woman Amen was a common expression of affirmation. Somebody else says something that's true and someone else says amen. Amen to what God has said or, or someone else has said. But Jesus does something unique in all the New Testament. He starts off 13 times in Mark and says, Amen, I say to you. Why is that unique to Jesus? Because when He speaks, God speaks. And we better listen up. Amen, I say to you. All sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. Let's pause there before he gets into a very harsh warning. That's beautiful, right? All sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. That's good news. But he quickly turns to verse 29. It says, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. That word guilty can mean in the grip of. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is in the grip of an eternal sin. Why did he say that to those leaders on that day? Verse 30, For they were saying, He has an unclean spirit. So when you read a passage like that, you want to, What is this blasphemy of the Spirit? Right? Let's let's get to it. I want to know what that is. So I don't do it. Okay, what is it? For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. They were intentionally ascribing satanic power to the Holy Spirit of God. To God himself. Now, I want to walk through some bullet points on this. It's in the imperfect tense. It says they were saying. It doesn't say they said. This was not a one time, oops, that slipped out. They were saying that the imperfect tense implies repetition and a fixed attitude of mind among these religious leaders. Okay? John Grasmick said it's not an isolated act or utterance. There's an attitude of defiant hostility toward God that rejects His saving power toward men experienced in the Spirit-empowered person and work of Jesus. Alan Cole gives us some bullet points that are helpful. Willful blindness. Willful is a key word there. These are not people that want to see. They have no interest in seeing what Jesus has to bring. It's willful blindness. They're blind because they want to be blind. Though they wouldn't say they're blind. Persistent refusal, opposition of his work, and deliberate misinterpretation of Jesus, who he is, what he does. Augustine, early church father, said it is willful persistence and impenitence and disbelief, a set attitude of rejection against the Holy Spirit. Mitten, said it this way, to call what is good evil when you know well that it is good because prejudice and ill will hold you in bondage. That is the worst sin of all. The tragedy of the hardening of heart which we read of these men in 3 verse 5 is that it makes men capable of committing just this sin. Isaiah had warned of this in chapter 5 verse 20. Woe to those who Who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. William Hendrickson brings out that this was not just an isolated event, it came in a context, and the context was a context of progress in hardening of their hearts. If you've been with us for a few weeks, you've seen this progress. He forgave the paralytic, and they said, He blasphemes. Who can forgive sins but God alone? The next chapter, they're plotting his death. And here, they're ascribing the power of the Holy Spirit to Satan. They're progressing. What's the solution? It is penitence, repentance versus hardening. It is confession instead of plotting against God Himself. Hendrickson goes on to say, their sin is unpardonable because they were unwilling to tread the path that leads to pardon. Now I want to come out of this as a pastor who who loves you all and as a fellow Christian who wrestled through this a lot this week. What is this? I want to come two ways at it. The first, I want to bring some comfort. and second, I want to bring a warning out of this passage. Where does the comfort come from? Well, it comes from two ideas. One from a man named Bishop Ryle. There is such a thing as a sin which is never forgiven, but those who are troubled about it are most unlikely to have committed it. What's he saying? He's saying if you're here and you're wondering and you're feeling bad and you're open to God and saying, God, I pray I have not done that and if I have, forgive me. You're in a really good place. The fact that you feel that and are aware of it and want to do something about it, that's good news. Okay? But secondly... Walter Wessel adds this, and and I like this. If the person involved cannot be forgiven, it is not so much that God refuses to forgive as it is the sinner refuses to allow Him. On the other hand, those who actually do commit the sin are so dominated by evil, it is unlikely they would even be aware of it. If you were to ask these Pharisees if they needed the forgiveness of Jesus in this moment, what do you think they would have said? <laughs> Heck no! <laughs> right, some scripture more important than men's quotes. Isaiah fifty-five six: Seek the Lord while he may be found; call upon him while he is near. John three sixteen and seventeen: For God so loved the world, he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Psalm 103.12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. Isaiah 118, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Let me bring some New Testament comfort. Do you all know the Apostle Paul was once a Pharisee? Philippians 3. He says, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. He vigorously opposed Christ and his church to the point of persecution, to the point where he stood giving approval as Stephen was the first Christian martyr. Now listen to what Paul says in 1 Timothy 4. Jesus, our Lord, appointed me to his service, though formerly, verse 13, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. When he says, I'm an example, he's saying, if you're sitting out there wondering if God can forgive you, look at me. Look at me. I was the chief of sinners. There's comfort in those words if you turn to Jesus in faith and repentance this morning. Now I want to talk to any of you who are wrestling with that. Maybe you're still sitting here saying, Man, did I forget that? Did I commit that unforgivable sin somewhere along the way? And where do I stand with the Lord today? And I want to encourage you. First of all, dive into God's Word and get with another believer. But secondly, John Bunyan wrote The Pilgrim's Progress. Most of us know that. But he also wrestled with that question of, have I committed the unforgivable sin for a good part of his life? And he wrote another book about how God brought him to peace and wholeness and an answer of God's grace. It's called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners by John Bunyan. So if you find yourself wrestling, I'd strongly encourage that. Now I want to bring the warning. A warning. I want to start with a story from the Oregon school system. A true story about a bunch of junior high girls that were just getting into lipstick and and they thought it would be fun to kiss the mirror at the school in the girls' bathroom and leave all their lip marks on there. And the janitor talked to the principal about it. It happened day after day, week after week, and finally he said, we got to do something about this. So the principal and the janitor brought all those girls into the ladies' room on the mirror with all their lip prints, and and, uh, they said, guys, uh, this takes a lot of work to clean off, and we want to show you just how much work goes into cleaning these off. So the janitor grabbed his brush, and he dipped it in one of the toilets, and he went to the mirror, and he wiped it all off as the girls stood there in shock. Amazingly, <laughs> there are no more lip prints on the, the bathroom mirror because they realized just how disgusting <laughs> what they had been kissing was. Right? Now think about that with our sin, the root of which is our pride, our obstinate pride. We, we love our pride. But a passage like this reminds us that it's not only disgusting and filthy, it will have eternal ramifications if we do not lay it down and humble ourselves before the Lord. Now, if you're a Christian in the room, you know that hell is off the table. If you're a true follower of Jesus Christ. But there are warnings about our relationship with the Holy Spirit Ephesians 4.30, Paul's writing to the church, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. How do we do that? We do that by willing sin. When He convicts us and we refuse to repent, we grieve the God who sent His Son to die for us. Do not grieve Him, Christian. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 says, do not quench the Spirit, do not throw cold water on what He wants to do in your life, your family's life, or the life of the church. And for those of you in here who may be wrestling with the gospel, do I receive it or not? Here's the warning. Do not resist the good news of Jesus Christ. John 3 goes on after verses 16 and 17 and verse 18 to say, Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. So, If you find yourself this morning, walls up, closed off to Jesus... Whether to receive Him for the first time or as a Christian, you're willfully grieving Him right now. What's the solution? Confess. Confess it. Bring it to Him. Ask Him for grace to repent. Turn around. The final one is sweet, especially after that one. I want to talk to you about the third group that was close to Jesus. His followers, including the twelve, some of whom have given up family and and careers to follow him. These are the ones that, though they're learning as well, they, they see him as Lord. Verse 31. His mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. This is very picturesque. You can see it's so full Mom and brothers can't get in, so they grab someone on the outside. Hey, tell Jesus we want to see him. Goes through the crowd and gets up there. And what would Jesus say? To those sitting around him, learning from him, those close to him. If you're a follower of Jesus, I want you to imagine him saying these words to you this morning. Because they apply. Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about it, those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Can you imagine them hearing that for the first time? Like, whoa, this is not just a king calling us to follow his commands. He is calling us family. Now notice he didn't say Father. That position was taken. But think about what the New Testament says about those who follow Jesus. Hebrews 2.11 says, He is not ashamed to call them brothers. Now that verse always gets me because of how often we are tempted to be ashamed of Him. And yet He says He's not ashamed of us. And I'm always like, who in that relationship has more reason to be ashamed? <laughs> So, something's wrong with it. He says he's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. And I don't know if you ever look at a group like that in a room with Jesus sitting at his feet or, or maybe Adam and Eve walking in the garden in the cool of the day and say, oh, if I could have been there. oh, How sweet that would have been. But if I'm reading my Bible right, one thing they never had was God in them, at this moment at least. Christians today do. 1 Corinthians 6, he says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? John fourteen twenty three. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. You see, being a Christian is not just about heaven, new Jerusalem, new heavens, new earth someday. It's about being family with God right now. You think when they heard that, that emboldened them to say, yes, I will do whatever he calls me to, because he called me brother. He called me sister. William Hendrickson says, Note the inclusiveness of this whoever does the will of God. It means black and white, red, brown, and yellow, male and female, old and young, rich and poor, bond and free, educated and unlettered, Jew and Gentile. I tell you, in a fractured world, the church is where it's at. In Jesus, we can show the world what unity, real unity, is all about. I think about them at the feet of Jesus. Can you imagine just what's He going to say next? Just sitting on every word. And I thought, man, what if if we would approach our time in God's Word like that? Because that's the primary way Jesus speaks to us today. Through the apostles and prophets. The Holy Spirit brings it to bear in our lives. What if we saw it like that? Martin Luther, the great reformer, said the Bible is alive. It, it has hands that, that reach for me and feet that, that run after me. What if we saw it like that? It is living and active and, and it's, it wants to get my heart, my life. God wants to get my heart, my life. What if, what if we thought about the great sacrifices that men and women in the past have gone through to get us a whole copy of God's Word in our hands? I was reading this week about William Tyndale went to Oxford and Cambridge, and he wanted everyone to have a copy of God's Word in their language. And he went about that, though many of the religious leaders and political leaders did not want him to. They were strongly opposed to the point where they burned many copies of his Bible and eventually burned him at the stake And there was one moment where he stood before one of those religious leaders and he looked him in the eye and he said, if God spares my life, that boy at the plow will know more of God's word than you do. I thought about the great sacrifice he and others went to so we could have a whole copy in our hands. And I thought, I'm that plow boy. You're that plow boy, that plow girl. And may we never take for granted, may we approach and say, God, Jesus, speak to me today through your word. But notice also, there's there's an inclusiveness, but there's also an exclusiveness. He says, those and those alone who do God's will. You see how he said it? Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So if you're like me, you read that, you say, well, I want to know what the will of God is. John 6, the Jews had asked Jesus, what must we do to do the works God requires? And this is where it begins, okay? John six, twenty-eight and 29, he said, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one whom He has sent. Believe in Jesus by faith, because the whole Christian walk is by faith from beginning to end. But does it stop with believing in Jesus that one time and then going back to life as normal? Is that the way God designed it? Absolutely not. First Peter 2.24 says, He bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin. We all know that. We're forgiven, dead to sin. But it doesn't stop there. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. We're not just forgiven. We're set free to live for Him. James 2.17 says, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Of course, we cannot, should not even try to do this in our own power. But as we embrace the reality that the Holy Spirit lives within us, that Christ lives within us, and we surrender in faith to what He wants to do in our lives, we go out and do the will of God. This has a life-changing effect on the world. As the, as they see it at times. Half heartedness, not so much. I, I, I read a story about a shoplifter that sent a letter to the store that she had shoplifted from with a hundred dollars in it. And the letter said, A while back I took some stuff from your store, so I wanted to send this. PS, if I if I still can't sleep at night, I'll send the rest. Probably left a mixed taste in that uh, storekeeper's mind. But I read another story of what a powerful witness it can be when someone really goes after the will of God in their lives. Casey O'Callaghan was a president of a fraternity in college that had a casino night one time. And a long time after the the casino night, he got a letter from a gal saying, "I, I stole some money at that casino night, and over the next six months... I'm going to pay it back to you. And she did over the next six months. And, and he asked her, why? Why did you do that? Nobody knew. And she said she had become a Christian and wanted to rectify some of the wrongs she had committed. He goes on to say, I was not a Christian at that time. I, I accepted the Lord as my Savior ten years later. But I believe God used that girl as one of many stepping stones toward a relationship with him. Because her story and her actions stuck with me. One who did the will of God and His power. One closing thought here before we go on to wrap this up. I think about those Pharisees. And I believe when I see Jesus elsewhere in the Gospels weeping over Jerusalem, saying, that you would come to me I would gather you as a hen gathers her chicks but you were not willing God takes pleasure in the death of no one Jesus loved the Pharisees and if they had turned in repentance and faith to him he would have gladly had them on the floor in front of him just as he would later embrace Paul and use him to change the world I want to close with a story of someone in our very own church because as you think about these three relationships to Jesus of confusion, being closed off or being close and you're wrestling with where am I sometimes it helps to to get personal this man sent his testimony to me last week and I believe it was God's timing I want you to listen to Jose's story many of you know Jose maybe you didn't know how he came to know the Lord Why, Mama, why? As I stood in that hot summer's day, words that rattled through my head every Sunday morning, as we would follow the same routine week in and week out, just hearing my mother's nagging voice that always encouraged us to go to church. As no answers could be given to the simple tasks we did in church, how could anyone possibly give me the answers to the bigger questions in life? Why are we here? What's our purpose? What happens when we die? Who cares? As I searched out answers or someone who could remotely give me a good answer, my heart yearned for the knowledge of God, but no one really knew how to reach me in a spiritual way. The older I became, the more disgusted I was with the notion called religion, the rules it imposed and the hypocrisy it presented. I vowed never to be one of them. I'm going to fast forward. I can't read the whole thing, but lots of twists and turns. Jose grew into a man. Lots of heartaches, disillusionments, brought him to the brink of suicide by scheduled hanging one day at 4 p.m. He goes on to write, no turning back. Without fear, I sprang up on that table with such fervor, I almost knocked a chair off. Reached up with handcuff on my left hand, placed the noose around my neck for the last time, and Waited. 3.59 p.m., second after second, tick-tock, tick-tock. With a minute left, sarcastically in a voice of defiance, I said, okay, God, if you do exist, prove it to me. Send me a miracle. Send me a sign. Or better yet, send me an angel. Knowing well in my heart that wouldn't happen. With 30 seconds till 4 p.m., a knock at my door. I was angry as to who would be bothering me at a time like this. So just to get rid of him, I slowly crawled off my tower of death. I answered the door, and before me stood a neighbor. Standing there, waiting for him to say something, finally he spoke. Hey, I'm your neighbor. I came over to see if you wanted to come over. We're having a party. There's girls, food, and beer. What a way to entice a single young man, but I kept thinking of my mission at hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just wanted him to leave. The young man still stood there. He reached out his hand and said, By the way, I am angel. It hit me like a Mack truck. Angel. Angel. I kept repeating it. No, it couldn't be. Is this the angel this sadistic God has sent to me? (laughs) With frustration and disbelief, I was determined to not accept this as a sign, but a coincidence Fighting the confusion running through my mind, I managed to drag myself back in. Staring at me again was that dreadful tower of death. Would I summon to its calling or take this God's challenge? Not only was he trying to prove me wrong, he was ridiculing me. I had to admit it this God did have a sense of humor, but I had perseverance, and I will prove to him that he did not exist. You do not exist, I sputtered, and I would prove it to him. Morning couldn't come quick enough. As I delved into educating myself more and more on evolution and any other theory, I had viciously thrown at my many victims. As I studied and evaluated it, it was finally coming clear. I could explain to the world that God does exist. No, 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 that's not what I wanted. For with God, I would lose everything I had, everything I was. Setting out to disclaim Him as I spoke words of hatred, they became words of praise. For now, my days are filled with joy. For now, I walk with the Lord. Witnessing to those who claim to be atheists, unbelievers, or anyone who has doubt, I may never be perfect, but I am forgiven. Amen. I share that at the end of this message because I think... If you had asked Jose before he came to the Lord, are you, are you someone that God could save? You ask people around him, is that someone God could reach? <laughs> a hardcore atheist, but but God did. And, and I think about what Jesus says about the faith of a mustard seed. You know what? A mustard seed does not require a huge opening to get in. Even through his darkest years, Jose had a sliver of where he was reaching out and God invaded that, that tiny little opening and invaded Jose's life with his grace and his salvation. Because at the end of the day, we can talk about our searching for God, but the more important underlying truth is that God is searching for us. Luke 15, I'll close with. Verse 4, What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country? And go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And I thought about that verse—the lengths God went to to grab a neighbor named Angel <laughs> and send him to Jose's door to save him. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is alive. It's a mirror. It shows us a a lot of what's going on in our own hearts, our relationship to You. More importantly, it shows us You. And I pray that whatever work needs done in our hearts, we just open up right now. If there's anyone in the room that's confused and needs to just admit that, maybe to You first, and then maybe another believer and say, Help me. Help me understand Jesus. If there's anyone who's been closed off and walled up that, It needs to repent and lay that pride down this morning. Bring them to the place of brokenness that you might lift them up. And Father, for those of us who are blown away that you call us brother, sister, mother, may we treasure our relationship with you, that reality. May it bring us to a place where we say, wow, you call me that, you brought me into your family, I will surrender to whatever you have. If we've been holding back on that next part of doing your will in our lives, help us to lay it down. Because we love you. We trust you. Thank you that you're a God who seeks and saves the lost. I pray this morning as we take our offering, you'd help us as a church to use it wisely to spread that message of good news to a dying world. In Jesus' name, amen.